we have a special relationship. Um, one, um, just too close, is that what the problem is? Um, one, um, really of a deep vulnerability. Because we, uh, we all depend, we all depend on each other. We, we probably wouldn't be where we are in our lives without the support that we've received. Um, just the support that's come from each one of you turning up tonight is huge. Um, I wouldn't be here without my teacher's support. And um, Dana is really the, the um, that relationship of vulnerability where uh, each one of us feels called to support each other. And um, that happens in all kinds of different ways. And for me, it happens um, in a very real life way because I'm only able to live and teach because of your support. And this is a new relationship I know um, for, um, for all of us here as a community. And it, it's different for some teachers. There are some teachers who um, um, have for all kinds of different reasons um, like Joseph, for example, and Jack, who live in in um, bigger houses and and um, and um, have um, more support, and then for many of us, and just to let you know, we live really on the line. I don't. I drive a 1988 Toyota Tercel, and um, <laughs> I rent my apartment. And, um, and I don't have any savings. And that's, that is the, that's, the, um, that's the reality of us learning as communities this vulnerable relationship. For me, it's vulnerable because I'm living in this relationship of faith that by practicing and by purifying as part of a community that I will be taken care of and that I will take care of you in terms of sharing my practice and my efforts and my perseverance and my patience. So it, it actually, it feels like, um, I wasn't going to talk about this, <laughs> it feels like um, it feels a blessing. It feels a blessing to be part of this kind of giving that we share together. and. Um, I wouldn't want it any other way. So that's just a little bit about Dana, a little bit more about Dana and, and the kind of um, responsiveness that we have to each other.
I'm wondering if I put it lower. Do you think that's better if I put it lower? There isn't that ring. How's that? That seems a little better. <coughs> so I wanted to um, talk tonight about truthfulness, which um, <laughs> I, I said I was going to talk about compassion, but then uh, when it came down to it, it, it wasn't really happening for me. <laughs> 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 and so um, <laughs> I was sitting there trying to write about compassion, and I was like, gosh, it's just, what is it that I want to talk about? And, um, um, and so what came out was that I wanted to talk about truthfulness, um, which I think is really interesting because it's actually a very difficult, it's a very difficult subject to talk about. I, not a diffi difficult subject to talk about. I think it's very difficult to practice. Um, truthfulness is um, part of the Ten Perfections, and um, just for those of you who, um, um, who are new to the practice, the perfections are these ten qualities that the, a Buddha saw when he was a bodhisattva, when he was someone who was a seeker like we are, and met a Buddha, and in meeting the Buddha, felt deeply touched um, by the purity of this being and said, I too would like to be a Buddha. And in that intention, he saw that to become a Buddha, he needed to perfect these 10 qualities of mind. And um, a couple of Thursdays ago, we actually went through them. So can you guys remember them? What were they, those of you who were there that Thursday? Let's try. Okay. Generosity. Energy or effort, yes. Equanimity. Patience. Morality or ethical conduct. Loving kindness. A big one is a big one. A big one. Perseverance. Excellent. Wisdom, truthfulness. Did we say loving kindness? Yeah, yeah loving kindness. So um, truthfulness is in that. And then right speech, which is very close to truthfulness, is actually part of the Eightfold Path. And, and that's really significant, because when we think of the Eightfold Path, which is the, the very fundamental architecture of this process of opening our hearts and our minds. Um, out of all the many things that is spoken of in, in terms of what is non-negotiable, um, and, and there are many that could be there, right speech is really at the center of that, right speech or truthfulness. Um, it's said that w after the Buddha saw the need to practice these ten um, perfections, that th he actually made um, um, mistakes on in the many, many lifetimes um, or, or, or as part of acting in um, 
less than fully mindful ways some of the times in his life. But there's one thing in all the thousands of lifetimes he lived after he dedicated himself to being a Buddha that he didn't do, and he never intentionally spoke an untruth. I think that's really beautiful. And um, um, this, is, this is what he said to Rahula, his son. He said, Rahula was holding a, b a bowl of water. He said, so little Rahula is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a lie. Then the Buddha throws, takes the bowl and throws away the water and says, in the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie throws away whatever spiritual achievements have been made. Do you see now how this bowl is empty? In the same way, one who has no hesitation about speaking lies is empty of spiritual achievement. Um, and actually, the Buddha said that about speaking the untruth, uh, and only about speaking the untruth. He didn't say it about sexual misconduct, and he didn't say it about um, taking intoxicants, but or even harming. He said it just about lying, and it reminds me of um, um, reading the life story of, um, wasn't Eckhart, it was Earhart, Earhart, the man who, who started Est and the Forum. And um, Earhart, Werner or Warner? Warner. Warner Earhart talks about his, um, his, um, his life. And he says at one point he decides to take the practice, this practice on, of not ever saying a lie, not ever gossiping, not telling an untruth. And he says he decided to do it for six months. And he said it was extraordinarily difficult. And he, he really persevered, because he'd made this commitment for himself. And in the process of that commitment, he says he had a profound opening, because he saw clearly what it was he was defending by telling lies, and that he didn't need to defend himself anymore in that way. And so he had his enlightenment experience. And he says his enlightenment experience came specifically from making that commitment. refraining from creating harm through our speech. Um, I've uh, mentioned before here that I was born in jo Johannesburg, South Africa, and that my parents were active against the apartheid uh, structure. And um, because activity, all activity, was seen as illegal, um, it had to go underground. It was. It was sort of like the Patriots Act, but much more intense. Any kind of criticism of the government was seen as, um, basically, you were labeled as a terrorist. So, um, so, 
so all all movements, even actually um, <coughs> my mom, who was going to the African townships to teach African miners to read and write, that activity was considered illegal. So everyone was organized in these different cells um, where, where people knew each other by pseudonames. So that if you were arrested, basically you were safe. There was one, there was one man, and I feel safe talking about this because he actually <coughs> wrote about this in a, mag in a um, uh, Granta magazine, Adrian Lethbridge, who, who grew up not being particularly, um, who, f who felt as though he wasn't very special. He wasn't particularly good at sports. He wasn't particularly good as, as, uh, um, at school. He wasn't particularly good at anything. He wasn't particularly good looking. He wasn't particularly good with girls. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and, f and um, Adrian um, moved into becoming um, active in the apartheid struggle and ended up um, joining uh, one of these cells. And because he felt a deep desire, uh, he says this, to be someone, he sort of inveigled himself into a leadership position, although he was much younger than almost everyone else, um, including my parents, and, and, and took a leadership position. And in that leadership position, learned the real names of everyone in all the different cells of the anti-apartheid activists. So um, we, or uh, my family, had constant police raids. And, and, and most of the people who were known to be activists had police raids. But um, in um, just before the Emergency Act of 1960, Adrian was um, arrested. And um, he was arrested and um, separated from his girlfriend, who was also arrested, and very nervous because um, he um, of his position. And in the process of being interrogated, the, the head of the Secret Service, someone I knew personally, punched him in the stomach several times and said, you're going to tell us what you know. They didn't yet know. Adrian's position. And Adrian had this incredible, ghastly thought of, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be in prison, and I'm going to be punched up. And he, and he said, I just couldn't face it. And so without, without any uh, further ado, he, he started to talk to this, um, the head of the Secret Service and tell the head of the Secret <coughs> Service all the names of all the people. So then everyone, including my parents, was arrested. Some people ended up in jail for 12, 15, and 20 years because of what Adrian told them. Not only did Adrian tell the head of the special branch everything, but he actually also went to court for the state in the trials of some of the people. I just spoke to my mom recently because I mentioned that I had read 
Adrian's story in Granta magazine, and she said, I can't forgive him. I just can't forgive him. I tell the story um, because of both sides, both Adrian then deep, deep remorse and self-hatred for what he did. And he said that he was obsessed with it after he made it, turning state's evidence, he, they let him out of the country. So he's now living in England. And for years and years, he, he was um, carried this incredible weight around with him. And finally, he said he, he went to therapy. It took him a long time. <laughs> he, he went to therapy. And uh, he said, I ended up, it took me years and years, and I ended up finally seeing two things. I finally saw that I never felt good enough, and that because of that, I put myself in a position that really was in a position I shouldn't have put myself in. And that then, having made the mistakes I did, I didn't want to take responsibility for them. And once I did, once I took responsibility and owned up, and his writing this essay was this process of saying, I really messed up badly. I messed up hugely and I take responsibility for it. And now I can only ask for your forgiveness. And I know that some of you who I'm hurt so badly will not be able to forgive me, and that's okay. I want you to know that I've done my work and that I am doing my work. And he, he ends up saying, and I feel like I finally picked up my life, I've gotten married, I have children, I have a job now in a university as a professor teaching. And I say this because I have been practicing <coughs> for many, many, many years, since 1979, and I'm still in awe of the ways of, of how insidious those little lies are, of how deeply ingrained it is to gossip, of how difficult it is to refrain from harming through speech. It is, it is I, I think, one of the most difficult precepts to practice, that non-harming through our words. And in investigating it, I see how much of the time the origin of that harming through speech comes because of a deep feeling of inadequacy or self-judgment or self-hatred that we carry inside of us. It's almost as though somewhere inside of us we think it's okay, and even in a spiritual practice, we think it's okay to say, yeah, get down on yourself. You know, it's okay for me to get down on myself. It's okay for me to judge myself. It's even okay for me maybe to hate myself because I think somehow or somewhere that that is doing me good. But the Buddha says that in each moment, including Adrian Lefwich, 
there is nothing ever that justifies our condemnation or judgment or self-hatred that actually this practice is about loving ourselves and loving kindness that there is never a moment in our lives no matter what we have thought or said or done that doesn't deserve loving kindness He says, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one-sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving-kindness in shining, beaming and radiance. The heart deliverance of loving-kindness exceeds these. The poet Yuvashenko says the most beautiful aching work in this world is to be ourselves. Really that means to become honest about ourselves, to have the courage to begin to challenge this inadequacy and the defensiveness that we build around it that becomes the source for the harming of wrong speech. To become ourselves is to both acknowledge this this defendedness and the identity we create around it, as well as acknowledging our beauty, our vision, our efforts, our patience, our kindness, our wisdom. To begin to acknowledge both these energies inside of ourselves and to to say I'm a student of life I watched myself tell an untruth again I love telling stories and I am humbled over and over again at the place where I move from telling a story to exaggerating you know just to tell a good story and to entertain and and when I backtrack and I think I got it again what is it it was it came from that place of saying the story without the exaggeration somehow didn't feel good enough and that is a deep that is a deep identification that I have of just not good enough and so it's, it's very humbling. And um, I, I don't know so much about your families, but in my family, there was this one, this really one very, um, what can I say, profound experience around speech and harming that, uh, that I experienced as a kid with my parents in jail. There was another one that I grew up with, and it was my father, who, um, who's, who's now died. And I can say this because the story was printed in the Sunday Times in England, which is the equivalent of the New York Times here. My father was a, a well-known um, acupuncturist and did um, also therapy with several famous, um, quite a few famous people. So when he died, he died in South Africa, there was this big, um, what do you call it? Uh, what? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people come memorial service. There was a big memorial service. So his um, a good friend of his um, stood up, Sylvester Stein, who's an author, and said, "You know, and I want to acknowledge Monty was his name. Monty as a playwright and theatre director. He directed plays. He directed a film. He was an activist in environmental concerns. He was also an interior decorator and later." changed professions and became an acupuncturist and then went back and got a doctorate in psychology. And so he was all these things, very creative, very dynamic, six foot two, two um, man. And, um, and so at the end of um, Sylvester's speech, uh, a very famous actor who now I've forgotten his name of came up to Sylvester and said, but you didn't mention that Monty was a doctor. And Sylvester said, no, Monty was never a doctor. And this actor said, well, Monty told me he was a doctor, an MD, and wrote and signed prescriptions that I took to the chemist. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this, actor, this actor felt um, moved um, enough to talk about Monty's lie to him in his autobiography, which got picked up by the Sunday Times. And the Sunday Times did this big article about Monty Berman, the famous blah, all these things, who lied about being a doctor. And my mother calls us, the daughters, together to say, I have to tell you this before you read it, that it's kind of you know, that there's this article about your father who lied about being a doctor. And she said, I told him because I caught him out years and years ago not to do it, that this was the equivalent of a federal offense. He could go to jail for doing this. And he still did it. And I feel moved to tell you this because it touches me so much that my father, who achieved so much in his life and was so acknowledged, still didn't feel good enough and had to lie and exaggerate about who he was in order to feel okay. And I think, and I think too, of this very successful series in England called Coronation Street, which was um, um, kind of like the equivalent of soap for America, but, but Coronation Street was the lives of these working class characters on Coronation Street, which was a real street in London. And it was really popular. And so much of Coronation Street, now that I'm in the Dharma and I look back, was about gossiping and getting down on each other. Everyone was always getting down, you know, oh, well, did you hear what Edna? No, I can't believe what Edna said. Well, Edith said this, you know. And it's, it was the same thing. There's of getting down on people because we don't feel good enough about ourselves. And how profound it is, how profound our words are and what our words do because of this delusion that comes from thinking that we're not good enough. And this whole teaching is the 
invitation and the reorientation to beginning to see that fundamentally we are good enough, that we are deserving of love, that we are deserving of kindness. And because we are, we find the strength then in order to be honest and to begin to say, I know I am a valuable human being. I am deserving of love. And in that relationship, I would like to challenge myself in the places and ways where I am not 100% truthful. Not because of a Ten Commandment thing, oh, lying is bad. Not because of that. But because in challenging ourselves to be truthful, in challenging ourselves not to create harm through speech, we challenge the false identities and defensiveness that keeps us from our heart. So, let's see. Where was that? This is, um, this is um, something that really struck me. I don't know if it struck you about what, it, what happens when we, when we identify so much with an identity or a system of honor. Um, um, uh, uh, not, well, you'll see what I mean when I say honor. This was in the Sunday, the Sunday Santa Fe News. Rafaya de Coyed, raped by her brothers and impregnated, refused to commit suicide. Even after she, even after she bought the unwed teenager a razor with which to slit her wrists. So Amira Abu Hanan Quad says she did what she believes any good Palestinian parent would. She restored her family's honor through murder. Armed with a plastic bag, razor, and wooden stick, Quod entered her sleeping daughter's room on January the 27th. Tonight you die, Rafaida, she told the girl, before wrapping the bag tightly around her head. Next, Quod sliced Rafaida's wrists, ignoring her muffled pleas of no mother, no. After her daughter went limp, Quod struck her in the head with a stick. Killing her sixth-born child took 20 minutes, Quod tells a visitor through a stream of tears and cigarettes that she smokes in rapid succession. She killed me before I killed her, says 43-year-old mother of nine. I had to protect my children. This is the only way I could protect my family's honor. I think my father felt the same way, that in some way it was the only way he could protect honor. And so the challenge for each of us is, what honor 
do we think we're protecting through our speech when we harm through speech? What is it that we're protecting? This is from Jeffrey Lockwood. I usually describe my profession euphemistically as applied ecology or pest management. As an entomologist on the faculty of the University of Wyoming's College of Agriculture, I work to develop new and better methods of managing grasshopper outbreaks that would otherwise devastate the western rangelands that ranchers depend on to feed their livestock. While agriculture brings forth life, entomology is largely premised on taking life. I flatter myself that I make substantial contributions to science by refining the use of insecticides. But the bottom line is that I'm an assassin. My job is to extinguish life. I'm expected to do it well, efficiently, and professionally. The first time I fully sensed death at such tremendous scale was during a sabbatical leave in Australia, a land known for its ability to touch the human spirit. My purpose in going there was to learn from the world's most efficient and effective locust control program. Early one morning, we traveled to the site of a stray program. I had planned to lend a hand in the body count or efficiency assessment but I never got beyond trying to comprehend the essence of the massacre. I had observed such programs in the United States, but never one in which death was so apparent. Perhaps it was the recency of the insecticide application, my empathy after having been engulfed by a swarm the previous day, or my detachment from the farmers who benefited from the program but I was stricken by the scene around me. Everywhere, locusts were lying in the burnt red dust. Some were dead, but many were still twitching in the spasms brought on by the neurotoxin. I am told that some bombardiers in World War II were unable to continue their duties once they witnessed the carnage on the ground. It was as if I had seen, rarely seen for the first time, what it meant to dole out wholesome death. So in the end, how do I live as an assassin? I know that the grasshoppers suffering and my pain are real. I know that they die so I might live. Grasshoppers are my ecological communion. Their bodies are my life. Through them, I have found meaning in my work, experienced connectedness to other beings, and gained a sense of purpose in this world. Perhaps my destiny is that of the warden to assure that these creatures do not die unknown by the hand of a dispassionate executioner. To be mourned is to have one's life and death touched by another sentient being. 
Perhaps that is all that any of us can hope for. But does one man's perspective offset the billions of deaths? I am suffocating under the expanding mass of corpses that pile onto my conscience each year. And so I tell their story and mine and ask something of you. At your next meal, say grace, give thanks, remember them. And I tell the story because I think we need each other. I think we need each other to tell our stories too. I think we need each other so that we can share our stories of when we forget, of when we tell our exaggerations, of when we find ourselves caught in the contradiction of a job or um, a work or of some other aspect of our lives where we're carrying the remorse of what we're doing. We need each other to tell our stories and we need each other to say grace for each other because we can't do it alone. And I say this because in the end I think that Adrian Lefwich and my father tried to do it alone. And because they tried to do it alone, because they tried to find some sense of some sense of goodness in something other than a community's exploration of where we fall down and where we find our truth, they ended up hurting themselves and the people around them. And so in the end, I think that this exploration of truthfulness is also very much about how open and vulnerable we can be with each other and how much grace we can say for each other. And I wanted to just end with this teal heart. By means of all created things, without exception, the divine assails us, punctuates us, and molds us. We imagined it as distant and inaccessible, whereas in fact, we live steeped in the burning layers. And then I would like to finally end with Derek Walcott. Uh, Wyatt. The half turn of your face towards truth is the one movement you will not make. After all, having seen it before, you wouldn't want to take that path again and have to greet yourself as you are and tell yourself what it was like to have come so far and all in vain. But most of all to remember how it felt again to see reflected in your own mirror the lines of abandonment and loss. 
and have those words spoken, inviting you back, the ones you used to say, the ones you loved when your body was young and you trusted everything you wanted. Hard to look, but you know it has to happen and that it takes only the half turn of your face to scare yourself to the core, seeing again that strange resolve in your new reflection. So let's sit for a moment together. the divine. May we entrust ourselves way may we find the courage to see directly our true reflection. In the seeing of where we're harming through speech may we be able to let go. Not through commandments or judgments, but through sharing and communion with our Sangha. May we allow ourselves to be supported in this path of truthfulness. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for turning up. <laughs> Thank you for your friendship and for all the, the divine inspirations and intentions you carry that brought you to where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.